been, as of June the 8th, two people to visit the football library three times. One is Gary Thacker, the other, Stephen Scragg. Oh, I am honoured. Esteemed. Uh, yeah. I did the Outside Right podcast not so long ago, and, and I think I was the first four, four times visitor to, to, the, to the Outside Right. So, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, an esteemed company, and yeah, I feel like there should be kind of a little uh, archway of balloons or something, and some party poppers going off. You, you've got a guard of honour from the other Excellent. football library visitors from the past. Uh, first question of all, and I rarely leave this question in, but how are you? How am I? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, plodding along, just, yeah. Because you weren't just... fine about ten days ago. Oh no! Yeah, yeah. Still, still trying to blow away the cobwebs of that. I mean, Paris was, uh, yeah, pretty abysmal. It, well, it's actually, it was actually a really great trip up until getting off the train at Saint Denis, uh, at the Stade de France, and then it all went sour from there. Really. As as you were outside the ground, could you see the headlines? Without, without a shadow of a doubt, you know, you, you knew the narrative that, that was going to be coming. Uh, but what, what I would say is that you know, um, I know from my own experiences, you know. The vast majority of people there, you know, have been to Champions League finals before. They know the script. They know to get there early. Um, we left the fan park four hours before kickoff. I didn't get into the stadium until forty-five minutes prior to uh, the scheduled kickoff mm-hmm. time. Uh, but within that, I was one of the lucky ones. You know, of the, of the three people, or the other two people who, who travelled with me to the stadium, because five of us went, two of us didn't have tickets, uh, so the, the other two had. Uh, gone to locate a bar within the centre of Paris to watch it. They'd just come along for the ride and, and, and the, 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 just the enjoyment of a, a Champions League final weekend. Yeah, the three of us that went to the stadium, the other two got in, one got in just before the delayed kickoff and one about 10 minutes before. And Jeff Goulding's son uh, didn't get in. He had a valid ticket. And, uh, and two friends of mine also didn't get in. So it was, it was utter chaos. It was, you know, uh, it, it was lunacy. Absolutely unnecessary and uh, completely avoidable losing. Look, we had Orgreave, Hillsborough, Grenfell, and now Paris. We know oh, who's yeah, responsible. I, I, would, I, would, I would categorically say we were a couple of minutes away from fate. I was, I was stuck in that crush by the underpass. Uh, I did experience tear gas after the game. You know, there, there are people who went with with far bigger horror stories than, than mine is. Uh, but I, I would say we were, we were a couple of minutes away from fatalities. There was a woman in front of me having constant panic attacks. There was a, a lad in a wheelchair that couldn't was just hemmed in. You know, kids were being dragged out. It, it was all too reminiscent of uh, of Hillsborough. And we, are, I was, well, I was trying to follow it. I went out because I thought, well, I'm not interested in the football anymore. It's almost. Uh... Well, thank God there was no Lorius Carrius figure in the match. It was just Trent Arnold forgetting to defend for the sixth time in about. Yeah, I think the only, the only thing I can remember from the match actually is probably that mad, mad effort at goal that went way, way wide from uh, from Navy Keita. You know, apart from that, uh, and the sense of inevitability when Madrid broke for the goal they scored, thought we're looking a bit stretched here. I, I can remember very little from the match, and, and I've not, I've not been able to, you know, find any angst in, in losing the Champions League final there because it's just been pre-match and after-match scenario. The fact that my friends have been through so much as well. I mean, some of them uh, were most dispossessed of, of money and, and 
passports. Uh, I had a friend who got back to his car to find a gang of kids in it. There was someone else we know who was you know, packed off to park at the disabled car park some nine miles away from the stadium. Uh, it, it was just you know, utter, utter, utter bedlam, really. And, and, and that's hard to shake. Uh, it's hard to focus on a football match when all that's been kicking off. Oh, God. So it, it would be um, tasteless of me to mention the European Super League, but there are there well, ha- there are reasons that, you know, why people it, it, disagree with UEFA and why there are yeah, problems. No, even when the European Super League took place, and we, um, we as Liverpool supporters wanted no part in it, we also said, as a caveat to that, was that, you know, the... the the status quo in UEFA are no better. You know, the, the fact that they've looked into to allowing teams into the flagship competition by virtue of the back catalogue of success, the, the concepts as well of the the, the changing of the, the format. I mean, I said when the, when, the, when the European Super League was shot down was that UEFA would come at it from that angle and, and they would look at that and say, right, we will morph the Champions League into something that will look pretty much like what the, the European Super League was going to or projected to be. And sure enough, that's that's the way they're going. Uh, and even down to kind of like you know, the, the small number of tickets that each each, each side has given. And, uh, the, the, there's something utterly distasteful about UEFA as well in this. You know, there is there is no you know you, you, there is no moral guardian of the game there. And this is even more wretched because we've had you in the football library before, Stevens. Greg, you write for these football times. You've written four books now. One is about the UEFA Cup. One's about the Cup. One is Cup. One's about the European Cup as it was, and you've said that football of today is less impactful to you than as it was. I don't think you'll ever forget about your experience in Paris. Much like what happened last year in London, the fact that England lost is almost incidental. The fact that Liverpool lost this game, because the story is not about football at that level. It does seem, to quote Notorious B.I.G., mo money, mo problems. And I don't like where it's going. So I, I don't care about top-level football. I'm really sorry to, uh, to you as a Liverpool no, fan, but I, I don't no, care. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, 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 I totally understand that. I mean, if it wasn't for you know my own club being involved at that end of the, of the football pyramid, then I, I don't yeah. think I'd have You see, I don't have that problem. You know, away from watching Liverpool, I, I tend to cast around looking for something that's competitive. I mean, this season... Been watching, you know, a lot of Serie A, for instance, and it's just been a joy to watch. Yeah. You know, AC Milan come good again. Uh, you know, Inter having broken Juventus's spell last year after whatever it was seven, eight, nine successive titles for Juventus, which is utterly distasteful. You don't want any league to have you no know, one team that just runs away with it every single year. Even even one team winning it, you know, six, seven, eight times in in, in a short space of time is bad enough, but. So for for one team to win more than three on the trot is, you know, for me, you know, should it shouldn't happen as it's called Within, doing a sconteriga. Yeah, you can look at was it um, Olympiacos who won eighteen out of twenty. I mean, just how do you sit and watch, you know, uh, a landscape of football that's like that? So for me, yeah, monopolies in football are never are never anything other than distasteful. You know, they are a product of you know the tilted playing field, really. And, and of course, that's, that's you are talking as someone who, by virtue of having a mercurial coach and James Milner in the squad, you are one of the two teams in this duopoly. 
Um, I'm I, rather than talk too much about Liverpool because we do have to get on to Mexico '86. Um, next season there will be three big stories. ETH and I'm already fed up of ETH. He hasn't even managed a game for United, but AVB, KDB, ETH, WTF, Watford. It's it's the acronym. <laughs> The other story is going to be, oh, Harry Kane's just done his ankle. Will he be fit for Doha? Don't care. Uh, and the other story yeah. is Alan Shearer. What do you think about MBS and human rights in Saudi Arabia? Because Newcastle are winning some football games. Do you foresee, well, A, do you foresee these football times writing about Newcastle next year? And B, do you foresee Newcastle breaking into the six? So it becomes like the secret, sacred seven. Uh, I think Newcastle just have to stop being... The Newcastle of old before they can do that, you know. I think I think when Chelsea got you know, the the big takeover from Abramovich, you know, I remember discussing it and saying, "Well, look, first you've got to <clears throat> unlearn all of that typical Chelsea, or you know, it was Manchester City, typical City. You know, you, you have to walk away from that, you know, ingrained generation upon generation, typical Newcastle, typical City, typical Chelsea, whatever that is, and, and that takes a little bit of time to get away from." In a way, Manchester City is still trying to fully get away from that. You know, what are they now? 13 years on nearly from from this takeover and still yet to win a Champions League. Uh, You know, Chelsea's two Champions Leagues have come during dysfunctional seasons rather than seasons when they've been riding high. PSG, you know, you look at PSG, they're still, you know, without a Champions League despite, you know, the the influx of money. It's, It's a strange, strange footballing world. You know, the, the more that these the, the entities uh, fall under the grasp of kind of know, emirates and states, I don't know, the, the harder the biggest prize seems to be to, to win. The one interesting complex that, you know, the, the biggest checkbooks just can't seem to overturn, uh, just yet at the very least. Yeah, and again... I wish I cared more. I, I tuned into Liverpool Madrid because I did want Liverpool to do well. And then as soon as I saw that the game was delayed, I thought, well, the football's not the story anymore. Um, I was going to ask, uh, and thank you for, for talking about uh, Paris on uh, May the 28th, as it will be loan, uh, the 28th uh, May. Uh, but compare and contrast the experience of the World Cup final 1986 for an Argentina fan with that of a Liverpool fan at the Champions League final in 2022? Because I imagine that you would have read contemporaneous accounts of fan experiences in the final, if such existed. Yeah, I think, I think for, for Argentina, I think success came as a surprise in 86. You know, uh, a lot of uh, Argentina's build-up to the 86 finals was very, very uh, slipshod. You know, they, they, you know, under Bellardo, the form fluctuated you know, massively, they lost games that they were they were not expected to lose. But within that, you know, he, he found it difficult to put a side together. He very rarely had Maradona until around about the the middle of nineteen eighty five. Uh, he had to court him to come back into the side. Uh, you know, he, he had to oversee a very much a dynamic change and shift within the the squad. You know, there was a power vacuum. There was a power imbalance as well. You know, on one side you have Maradona, but on the other you have Daniel Passarella. Uh, you know, so Bellardo gives Maradona the captaincy, and 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 there is a lot of there is a huge amount of dysfunctionality going on. Uh, the press are really against the Argentinian national side or the, the setup coaching uh, prior to the tournament, and, and expectations are very very low. So for them to come through to sweep through and win it. 
uh, you know, the, the, the sense of joy within that would be accentuated massively by the fact that it came out of left field. It, it wasn't expected uh, amongst Argentines. Because the best team in the world, let's let's not bring Brazil into it, just in case Stu uh, is listening. Hello, Stu. Um, Stu Horsfield, uh, author of a book about 82. But uh, I've picked up Angels with Dirty Faces, Jonathan Wilson's book about Argentina, which I'm sure you made reference to. Oh, yes. Yep. Tony Schumacher was in goal for West Germany. This was a West German team with Dieter Hernes, Felix Magat, Rudi Vola, Andy Bremer, Karl-Heinz Rummenegger. That's a good team. Um, so should West Germany have won that tournament? West Germany weren't even the best European side at the oh. Six World Cup. They, they strangely, again, you know, the 1984 European Championship, they were knocked out at the group stages, the, the final decisive game against Spain. Uh, they they were beaten by a very very late goal and denied place in the, the semi finals that was theirs in the palm of the hand uh, and Jupp Derwell uh, the coach uh, lost his job on the back of it and this is Jupp Derwell who he he'd had the job for six years he'd been um, Schoen's assistant prior to that he he took the job on after the 1978 World Cup led them to glory at the 1980 European Championship. Uh, on to the 1982 World Cup final, lost to Italy, and then there's 84, and then suddenly this you know, anomaly of being knocked out in the group stages, and and, and it it's a you know it's it's a sizable bruise for West Germany, but at the same time, you know Derwell was you know willing to to carry on. He was contracted until 86, but then this this wave of animosity towards him swept him out of the job. It was handed to Beckenbauer, who, who had no discernible coaching. Experience and this was a break from the normal uh, as far as West Germany was concerned. Show coached the Saarland, he was brought in as Sepp Herberger's right hand man. Uh, so, when there was this progression, this, this handing over of the baton, so when Derwell was to step aside, it, it, if the, the pattern was to continue, it would have been someone else from the, D, the DFB, but, but you know, Beckenbauer as outspoken as ever, you know, not long out of his own playing days, came thundering through, uh, took the job, had no coaching credentials and, and didn't really set the world alight between 84 and 86. You know, they were, they were quite functional. Uh, there was frustrations because, you know, the, the, the position of sweeper, which had been Beckenbauer's, was seemingly impossible to fill. Uh, you know, there the were various candidates and uh, the man that was eventually settled upon was settled because he, he was defensively capable rather than having any great vision. You know, his distribution was often scowled at uh, Herge. Yes, you know, there the were serious question marks and, and, and in a way, that, that West Germany side, the players who were coming through, they, they, weren't, they certainly weren't as good as the players that they had followed into the national team. But within that, just having that DNA and that remit for success and that will and desire, you know, that, that infamous organisation and, and, and that ability to win and that focus was, was what pulled them through. Even in the group stages, the loss to Denmark, the draw to Uruguay at 2-0 down in the final. You know, In a way, it was a mystery how West Germany managed to get as far as they did. Yet that is lost within the whole idea that the West Germany and they're meant to be there. West Germany were one of 14 teams from Europe in a 24-team 
tournament. So over half of the teams in that tournament were European. Did that mean anything to you when when you were, what I know you were very young when you were watching this tournament, but did it mean anything that it seemed to be Europe plus 10 other countries? No, not at the time, because that was just, you know, it, it was the, the way the footballing world order was. Uh, but this was the World Cup that, you know, propelled that to, 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 to change in many ways. I mean, it, it, had been, it had started on drip-drip basis in 82. Uh, you know, the, the expansion to 24 teams, you know, that within itself brought, you know, a secondary qualification place for, for African nations. Uh, there were two qualification bursts, although be it to be shared by Asia and, and Oceania, and then like an extra place. So it was it was on, rather than a, 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 a mass scale, it was, I know, it started on a drip-drip basis almost. Oh. But within that, you know, 82, Algeria and Cameroon had done so well in the group stage. They didn't get beyond the initial group stages, but they made people aware that you know the, the, these are no longer. You know, I think I think it changed. It, it certainly changed the outlook of a, a generation of, of football watchers. You know, the older generation still continued to to mock the non-European and South American parts of the football and world, but younger people were sitting up and taking notice because there was Algeria who beat West Germany in '82. There was Cameroon who came to within one goal of, of knocking out Italy in, in 82. Uh, so in 86, I think there was an appetite for, for younger people to see just how good or how how, how they could challenge from, from different parts of the world. You know, South Korea you know, were, were magnificent. One of my favourite parts of the 1986 World Cup was South Korea. They didn't get beyond the group stages, but they gave at both Argentina and Italy a, you know, massive scores and scored some wonderful goals. They were also very physical, you know. They 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 kicked, you know. They went for the shin as much as they went for the ball, and there was something fascinating about them. And then within that, you've got uh, again a, a well organised Morocco side that made the last sixteen, and and had they been a little bit more fluid and freer in their play as they had been against Portugal in their last group game, then they might well have knocked out West Germany in the last last 16 and, and, and preempted the Cameroon of 1990 as being the first African side to make the last days. Isn't there something, um, the Benjamin Massing moment happened today. I, I think I saw online. It was yes, this date in history yeah. that Cameroon played Argentina. And if you want to know about African football uh, at the World Cup, No Longer Naive by Ibrahim Mustafa is in the football library. I don't think I've mentioned that your book is called In the Heat of the Midday Sun, Stephen Scrag. Uh, but those who know you will know uh, that that is the name of the book. The book had a stag do as part of these football times. It was always a delight to listen to those. So I won't uh, talk about Brian Robson's shoulder too much, but the, <laughs> the tagline for the book is kind of the dislocated shoulder of football books, wasn't it? Was that yes. the agreed upon line? Yeah, well, I, th- I think so, pretty much. Uh, yeah, Gary was kind of like, you know, uh, he played devil advocate there as, as me, Stu and, and Aidan uh, went off on one, I think. Yes. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, I, I think rightly so myself. And I look forward to reading this book because I was not alive in 1986. Sorry, that is just fact. Um, <laughs> so my first World Cup was 98. England weren't involved in 94, so I couldn't get swept up in that World Cup. And in any case, it was in America, so the games were on too late. Whereas you would come home from school or in summer watch this 
glorious football, much like Brazil 1970. Uh, the sun was out, the kits were, were great, everything was in colour. And on this date in 1986, June the 8th, Denmark 6, Uruguay one. So rather than get you to rehearse all the stuff you've written about Denmark in the book, can there be a Danish dynamite type team in 2002? I have an idea of who it could be, but I just wanted your opinion first. It's kind of the people's team of a World Cup. Uh, I think there's always an appetite for, for, for football watchers to find that kind of team. You know, whatever your I don't know, your reset image of a World Cup is, you know, you, you want to kind of relive that and, and, and recycle that and have that team that means something. Yeah, who that'll be in 2022? <laughs> I haven't got a clue. Well, I honestly could not. I could not proffer an opinion there. I think I, my head's still kind of like, you know, revolving 86 rather than 2022. Well, I'm going to posit a team managed by Felix Sanchez who started off in the Aspire Academy and moved up through the age groups to become the manager of the hosts, Qatar. Fair enough, fair enough. I mean, I do think the hosts, I think even when you go back to 2018, I think people got behind, I mean, people will not want to admit this now, but I think people got behind Russia because Russia weren't, there'd been better Russian sides than there was in 2018. But they, they gained this momentum. It was a bit like West, uh, not West Germany, unified Germany by 2006. I think even people kind of like piggybacked on Germany's ride in 2006 because they, they'd been written off. Uh, you know, they weren't what they were. They were, as far as a lot of people are concerned, they were never going to be what they were again. But yeah, they had this, this great run to the semi-finals. People tend to piggyback off the, the, the feel-good factor of, of a host nation doing very well. I think it's, it's pretty pivotal. For, for a major international tournament, for its host nation to, to prosper in it and, and to, to enjoy a decent run within a, you know, a relatively deep you know, section of the tournament. We'll see if Qatar wake up. I wonder if they will take lessons from Iraq in 1986. What a surprise to see Iraq there. Yeah, Iraq, were, were, they were properly, properly the, the unknown. I mean, a lot of stuff about the 1986, watching the World Cup in the 1980s was unknown because you didn't have, you know, there was there was no internet, there was no, you know, dedicated sports channels. We weren't watching wall-to-wall, you know, uh, foreign leagues or anything like that. We were pretty much at the mercy of a short synopsis. In a, you know, you, 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 whatever your, your, your parents' newspaper of choice was, they tend to do a pre-World Cup or pre-European Championship pull-out, and, and your, your information would be gleaned from from those. And, and, and for an Iraq, it would be maybe if you were lucky, you'd get six six short paragraphs on you know what what to expect. They're one of those teams that you know you can look at a major international tournament. A team goes into it and play three and they lose three, and it's easy just to kind of like brush past that. But you know they they've already scale the mountain to get to that point in the first place. And usually with those three games that they lose in the finals of a major tournament, there's usually a few sliding doors and a, a few could have could have been moments. Like, you know, there's usually a post that's been hit or a you know, wonderful save that's denied them or a penalty that's been missed. And, and, and so it proves with Iraq. Iraq you know, have the moments where they could have snatched the glory, they could have you know, tested you know, the, the endeavour of, of fellow group members for a place in the knockout stages. And within that, that huge shadow of uh, Uday Hassan absolutely you know, uh, hovering over them. 
you know, to the to the point that you know he he turned around and said you should be you know be able to win games at this World Cup because Adidas are supplying our kits. It's it's you know the the magical insanity of it as well. Uh, and for Iraq in '86, following the footsteps the likes of Haiti in 1974, in uh, sending a team to the World Cup finals, uh, giving the players you know huge bonuses, you know houses, cars, setting themselves up. Yeah, you know, torturing them on return because they've they've had the temerity to lose to world class opponents. Again, it stopped being about football at that level. You mentioned Adidas. Um, I didn't know until yesterday that the Al Rila or the Al Richler, I don't know how it's pronounced, is the official ball of the World Cup. One percent of sales goes to common gold. Do you know what one percent of the cost of a ball is? It's not about. about Four piece something like that. Four, four uh, at the most, most more or less. How much they're knocking, knocking these balls out for nowadays? The ball retailed at 140 euros or 140 dollars. One percent is one euro or one dollar forty cents. Philanthropy, FIFA style. Yeah. Um, if I'm not there, I don't want to feel like I'm there. So said Stephen Scrag in this These Football Times stag do to launch the book in the heat of the midday sun. These these are some futuristic stadia uh, that are being transplanted to Qatar, built by slaves. So um, the past and the future colliding. From what you can tell, do, is it going to feel like an elsewhere place, Qatar, this winter? In some ways, yes. In, in a lot of ways, no. Like say, you know, World Cups of, of, of way back, you, know, you, you did have that hazy shimmer on the screen from the pictures. The words exactly perfect. It's the commentaries as if sent from the surface of the moon. I mean, it's the whole thing that you know, they're about. You know, eventually someone will set foot on the moon once again, but it won't look like the grainy images of, of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. It'll look crystal clear, and and you'll see you'll be able to make out the, the grain of the the sand, the, the powder on the, on the on the surface of the moon. I don't want that. You know, I, I want the aesthetics of it feeling like it's a, a million miles away, that it's a completely different universe. Um, you know, because that, that's what it was. You were learning something when you were watching World Cups back then. It was more than the football. It was the geography of it. You wanted to know something about the nation that was hosting this tournament. And, you know, you're not going to get that with Qatar quite so much. Information is, is, is within your fingertips. You know, the, the pictures coming back from Qatar will be crystal clear. You know, it, it will feel as if you are the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was it was it 2018 or was it the one of the times before? Uh, there the was the BBC for one of the last tournaments did it. So we we bought my son for Christmas a, a VR headset, and he turned out to me and said, "You can watch a game on the on the, the headset, and it's like you sat in the stadium." So I did it, I tried it, I only did it for one game, and it, it literally felt, you know, you could turn your head and look, you know, you could see all all, all parts of the pitch. It, it was just like the bizarrest things. Hmm. Uh, and, and again, you know, once you were sat within that for five or ten minutes, you know, it, it, it almost felt like you were there. You know, you, you don't want that. If you, like I say, if, if you're not there, then you shouldn't feel like you're there. Ooh, you know, I was, was going to say something really horrible. I was going to say, does the VR headset recognise homosexuals? So they'd say, nope, you can't watch this game because you're gay and we don't... This is, it's kind of... Qatar is taken over for a month by the Republic of FIFA. You'll only be allowed to drink Budweiser. You're only allowed to eat McDonald's or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's all kind of like... Uh, yeah, it's, it's very much going to be 
uh, you know, homophobia as sponsored by, you know, uh, there is that distaste. But the thing is that these tournaments, I don't know, uh, such a dark corner, you know, the dark recesses to them. Yet, come kickoff of the first game, you know, we, we all we all return to being 12 years old and it's it's the World Cup and we all get tempted by the sticker book or, yeah. you know, it's suddenly it's, it's you know, you're 12 again and you're wanting to, to just watch it. You see it as a World Cup and, you know, what does that say about us in a way? But, you know, it's it's that indelible pull of childhood almost. It's not necessarily that tournament this year or, or that World Cup. It's, it's reconnecting with something from your youth. And, and everything that's associated to that, because it's the bizarrest thing I can I can remember the you know the night of the nineteen eighty two World Cup final. I know that it rained. I know that I went to the local shop and bought a bag of frazzles and a curly whirly. That was my you know my match uh, snacks yeah. for, for watching the game. You know uh, it's it's everything that it brings back. You know it's 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 the people you watched it with. You know, it's 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 everything. You know, it, it might be a game where you go out after the match, and, and and there will be stuff that stays with you forever. And then because it's that tournament again, you know, it, it's that relation to those early ones. You know, you say '98 is your first World Cup. You'll probably find that by 2006, you, you're losing the plot of them. You know, uh, say so by the time you reach about 16. By the time you can sneak into pubs underage, or you're starting to pay your own bills of some description then it starts to lose its luster somewhat. Uh, you know, you can never quite beat those first couple of World Cups when it's carefree, you're at school age, and it's simply just a case of get home after school and you're, you know, and you're in for that early, early kick-off. It's going to be um, weird this yeah. year because it's going to be November and December, not summer. Your kid doesn't have exams or modules this winter, does he? No, not this winter. Lovely. So it could be father, father and son watching three very quick questions on england who is the only player over 30 years of age in the england squad uh, that'll be peter shelton yep who were the two milan players who were selected for the squad uh, mark Haitley and ray wilkins very good and to the nearest whole number how many liverpool players were picked by bobby robson uh, none none how many were picked by alex ferguson uh, originally two with one on the standby list, but then Kenny Daglish pulled out injured. Yep. So Steve, yeah. So only one went. Steve, look, that's crazy. The Liverpool team only. I think Everton had four um, that Robson picked. Um, but that England team, you you very cleverly get rid of the Maradona thing very early on in the book because otherwise that would be a cloud hanging over it. That was the certainly for the English. It was the two Maradona goals, but the World Cup. In 1986, under the heat of the midday sun, which should have been held in Colombia and was held in Mexico, there are some great games, uh, the group games. Italy won, Argentina won. Was that as close and exciting a game as perhaps it should have been? Yeah, the sense of occasion, that's, that's again, the thing that you have from back then, whereas now there's so much football on, it's very hard to build a, a sense of occasion around a football match, even a Champions League final. But back then... You know, it, it really was. It felt absolutely massive. And when you got a game like Italy versus Argentina, uh, you know, it, it, it te- never tended to let down, let you down. You know, even if the game wasn't particularly great, one there would be flashpoints in it. There would be a piece of skill that you took away from that. You know, that that Maradona goal, because you know, Maradona, because the two goals against England and two win goals against Belgium in the semi final, you know defined so much of what he did at that tournament. Uh, that, that one against Italy that just evades 
the hand of Giovanni Tense go forgotten, and that's a wonderful goal as well. Uh, you know, that game was probably Italy's best one at the tournament. So, yeah, it, it was uh, it was definitely, I mean, the, the early exchange of that tournament and to be able to get kind of like a Brazil-Spain game within the first 24 hours or so of the tournament was was just magnificent. Uh, and, and again, the controversy in that, that Spain had a, a perfectly good goal, denied them when, when the ball bounced over the line off the underside of the cross. Well, we'll have none of that this uh, winter. This is the VAR World Cup. This is, indeed, indeed, there'll be no Frank Lampard against uh, East nope. Germany. No Jeff um, Hurst, none of no that. It's going to be a sanitised, perfect, robotic. Which uh, exactly, you can see it crystal clear mm. through your televisions. The, the last great thing about the World Cups of the past is that there is that I don't know that 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 pantomime villain. There is that injustice that that went missed. There is that you know pickpocket that got away with a uh, which just adds to the legend of it. You know, I, I doubt we're looking back 30 years from now at VAR overturning, you know, a potential wrong, being able to make a, I don't know, a, a semi-romantic footballing book about it. That would be, I'd, I'd love to see you try, but that's not where your mind that's is someone else's, No, that's, that's someone else's generation. There, is. there is a book coming up by James Kelly. I'm sure you may even have read it. It's about Belgium. Yes. Yes, I have read it. Yeah, I managed to help him out as part of that one as well. Brilliant. Uh, yes, which because, was just a joy. To because be to, to, yeah. Belgium went very deep in this tournament. They beat the Soviet Union on extra time, their rivals, the Netherlands, on pens, and they took France to extra time as well. Can you account for Belgium's success in the tournament? No, because they were, they were very prosaic in the, in the qualifiers. There, there was nothing in the qualifiers that suggested they could be as. as uh, endemic to this World Cup as they were, uh, you know, in the, in the the early knockout stages, they, you know, it's all fits and starts. They lost some big names through injury. There's some similarities to England when they lost, when they lost Robson, they lost Wilkins, and the hand was forced to to, to change direction, uh, and and that kind of happened to Belgium as well. And Gitis, you know, there's a, a you know a magnificent squad that Belgium had, but he had a, a habit of putting the handbrake on. He was one of these handbrake type coaches. Very good coach, but he wasn't, you know, uh, he wasn't gung ho. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a Stefan Kovacs in just saying, look, let's let's push the bandwagon downhill and see where it lands. There was none of that. There was a safety first aspect to it, but they got better as it went along. You know, that four three against the Soviet Union was was incredible. You know, to knock out Spain, results that. I don't know, almost alienated some supporters against them because a lot of people loved that Denmark side, you know, so that Soviet Union side, as, as I did. Uh, you know, a lot of people had Spain down as being the dark horses and the potential winner, uh, and then they weren't. So, yeah, Belgium, the, the, there was no rhyme or reason to it, but they play a huge part in the tournament. Fab, in the heat of the midday sun about Mexico 86, Stephen Scraggs' fourth book is the fifth in progress? Uh, yes, I've got uh, books five and six. And six. On the on the drawing board, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. I think one, next time I'm going to have to just invite you and Gary together because you're the only yeah. two who have been here three times. Um, enjoy your summer as much as you can. Well done. And fantastic to speak to you. These football times carries on doing brilliant things, and uh, Stephen is part of that. Cheers, Stephen. Speak soon. Just like the library. Just like the library.